From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. Today, I'm thrilled to have Martha Kumar as our guest. She's an expert on transitions. She got her PhD from Columbia University. She was a professor for many years at Towson, and she's a professor emeritus there now. She runs the White House Transition Project, and she's really one of the nation's experts on the issue of transition planning. So thank you very much for being here. It's my pleasure to be here, David. So I'm going to start with a basic question, which is, why of all things did you decide to become an expert and write and research on transitions? I came into uh, uh, transition work from my work on White House operations, and I was interested in how the White House works, the staffing system, and White House communications. And transitions are very important to setting up a White House and have it run properly, that what happens at the beginning makes a difference for the years to come. And so I ended up getting involved in the transition of 2000 and uh, received a grant from the Pew Charitable Trust. It's for a group of scholars who are presidency specialists who study White House operations, and we prepare information on the functions of White House offices and the responsibilities of the directors based on interviews with people who have held those jobs. And you run something called the White House Transition Project. What is that and what do you do? Yes, well, the Transition Project is this group of scholars, and they are people who have studied the presidency and written about it for a number of years. And our idea is that when people come into the White House, they think that history begins on January 20th of their year. And soon they learn that actually there are rhythms to a White House and to an administration, and that uh, there's a history to the offices that they head or they serve in. So what we have done is interviewed people who have held those positions and write essays and analytical pieces about the offices, how they work, what their functions are, and what the responsibilities are of, of those who come in. So let's go directly to history. The transition used to be much longer. The election was held in November, and presidents used to be inaugurated in March. But in 1933, that law was changed, and Eisenhower was the first president who actually had the shorter transition in January. Now it's about 73, 74, 75 days. Why was that transition period shortened? The transition period is important to have a shortened one because travel and information are moving much faster now than they were. And with the kind of vulnerabilities that you have of in that period in changing presidents, it's important to have a period that's long enough to get your policy and personnel in order, but not too long. In fact, if you look at uh, President George W. Bush's transition, it was only 37 days, but they had done so much work beforehand preparing for it that they were able to come in and had a, a very smooth beginning. President Truman, you wrote, was the first president to really think about transition planning, in part because he was held in the dark by President Roosevelt, and he was frustrated, and he said the next person that comes in should have the knowledge and the benefit. So he actually reached out to both candidates for presidency, the presidency in 1952, but it didn't turn out so well. What happened there? Well, in uh, Truman's case, he decided that he was not going to run and announced it in the uh, winter, 
And then he thought that uh, it would be good to have both sides come into the White House. It was during the summer of 1952 in August, and he invited Adlai Stevenson and uh, General Eisenhower to come to the White House and get briefed by the CIA and briefed by individual cabinet members and White House staff, and that they would have lunch as well. And Stevenson did. Eisenhower was not uh, was not in favor of doing it, so he said he wrote him back, turning down the invitation, and he said, "I believe our communications should be only those which are known to all American people." Consequently, I think it would be unwise and result in confusion in the public mind if I were to attend the meeting in the White House to which you have invited me. He was planning on running against the uh, administration. Truman was very unhappy, and in a characteristic uh, Truman response, he wrote, I am extremely sorry that you have allowed a bunch of screwballs to come between us. You have made a big mistake, and I'm hoping it won't enter this great republic. (laughs) So Truman was famously frustrated, and actually we'll come back to this about which transitions were the worst transitions, (laughs) but Truman's work, and actually when Kennedy was elected and then Uh, In 1963, Congress actually passed transition legislation, which has then evolved over time. What did that legislation do, and how has it evolved? The legislation comes about because you had political parties providing whatever funding a president needed prior to 1963, but they found they needed more, that they needed some government help after the president was uh, was elected and before they came into the White House. So the 63 framework is looking at providing some services. And then as the, as the transitions unfolded in, uh, in future years from then, you had uh, contributions from outside and because the government funding wasn't enough. And then there were requirements on what kinds of limits, uh, both making uh, contributions public and then limiting them to $5,000. And then there was a, a, a feeling that in the government that more than just the General Services Administration needed to be involved. Presidents themselves got involved through, through executive orders mm-hmm. creating councils. So the role of the president came in here, where Clinton and Bush as well had executive orders that were cre- that created a White House transition uh, council that uh, that worked on the preparation of transition. And then there were more government resources provided as technology developed and and there were worries about uh, hacking and general security concerns. You have more government resources and you have to get involved in an earlier time period, especially after 9-11. There was a feeling that you needed to start early. And so you have presidential um, transition pre-election legislation that provides resources for candidates after the conventions, but before the election. So you have just increased amount of legislation that's thinking through what the needs are. The legislation is responsive to what candidates have found and what the government thought was wise. You wrote a book about the smooth transition of power between George Bush and Barack Obama. That was the end of an eight-year term. There was no vice president running, and it was post 9-11. This year, it's much different. How might this transition be different if the Democrat were to win and President Trump were to lose? 
Presidents in office, as incumbents intending to run again, tend not to want to jinx themselves and send out a message that they might lose. Even in the 2012 election, that uh, President Obama uh, filed the minimum information uh, to Congress on on what they were doing, the preparations that they were making. And at the same time, the legislation that's been created provides that the department and agencies are going to develop information for new people coming in. So it's not as if it all depends on the president. The bureaucracy is a, a very important partner here. And the new legislation requires that be handled by career officials, which is also a positive development. You've written a lot about presidents hitting the ground running quickly. One of the things that you've written about, which is very interesting to me, is that presidents usually get a big bounce in popularity, favorability post-election on average, about 15% from where they were at the time of the election. Why is that, and how does that affect their agenda? I think people uh, have goodwill for a new administration, and they want to to follow them, and they believe if they were elected, they want to support them. So even though George W. Bush uh, did not win the plurality of the votes, when he came in, he had strong, uh, strong support. And Part of that is the natural tendency to support a new president, but he also took steps that uh, that I think sent signals that he wanted to come in as a uh, as a person who was going to work with Democrats, not just with Republicans. The first issue he tackled was one that he and his team picked because they knew they could get bipartisan support on, and that was the issue of education. Mm -hmm. So they they had uh, Ted Kennedy involved in it from the Senate and George Miller from the House, who was also a Democrat, uh, who headed the Education Committee. And do presidents get a second-term bounce typically or not? Second term is very different than the first because – The first term, you have a new agenda lined up as you come in, and a second term, you're basically left with leftovers from the first administration of things that you can't get through. And uh, so presidents have tended to focus on foreign policy and taking executive action in their second term because they uh, they run up against the, the limits of getting a a strong coalition that's bipartisan. One of the other things you've written about is the common clashes that occur between a campaign operation and a transition team. They're two separate operations. They're two separate apparatuses. And post-election, there have been clashes. Why does that happen, and what can folks do to avoid that? One of the uh, one of the the factors here that's very practical is people that are working on the campaign are working usually with a not great salary. Some are working for free, and their idea is that they're going to come into the administration. But you have a transition group that's working on planning, and their fear, the campaign workers' fear, is that all they're going to take all the best jobs, and uh, and there's nothing that's going to be left from for them. So in order to handle the suspicion that naturally arises, the best way of doing it is to have people meet occasionally and just let the campaign people know what the transition people are doing. So in 2000, 
uh, Clay Johnson, who was doing the transition work for George W. Bush, met with uh, Karen Hughes, who was doing communications, and Carl Rove and Joe Albog, who were running the campaign. And he would meet with them informally and just tell them what he was finding. To reduce suspicions, to reduce overlap, to reduce conflict. And also, it depends on the person you appoint to to head the transition, the executive director. So in Clay Johnson's case, people knew him as a friend of Bush's who was not politically inclined. And so they didn't see him as any any kind of threat. One of the other things you've written about is prioritization. And presidents have famously made mistakes to put together the cabinet first. President Carter did that. President Clinton did that. And you've written that History shows that it's much more important for presidents to focus on the White House staff versus the cabinet. Why is that? And Clinton uh, talked about that later, that he should have paid attention to the White House staff. And the reason is that that is your decision-making system. So before you go um, out and start picking cabinet members, you want to have your system in place where you set out what information you want, what kind of uh, cabinet you want, what are your priorities, and how is all of that going to fit with the legislation that you're prioritizing. And if if you don't do that, if you're just picking cabinet members first, and one of the things that you can end up doing is when you're doing the White House staff, putting it together, you focus on campaign workers and use White House positions as rewards rather than thinking that the people you hire in a White House need to have different skill sets. They need to be ready for governing, which is very different than campaigning. One of the things you've written about extensively is the design of the White House. You have organizational charts from every White House going back to Kennedy. You speak to the campaigns about White House organization and design. What are the critical issues that a candidate for president or a president-elect needs to decide in terms of organizing his or her White House? One of the things they need to do is think of whether that organization is going to be hierarchical or flat. Is everybody going to be, you know, everybody who's a top-level aide, do they get access to a president on a regular basis, or do they have to go through central authority? The, uh, the White Houses that tend to be able to deliver for a president in terms of their goals and setting up the priorities as the president wants tend to be those that are hierarchical. And what would be an example of that? An example would be in the Clinton administration, Leon Panetta was the chief of staff, and he pulled together people who were at the top that were involved in policy, politics, and publicity. Those three are important to have in the room at the same time, because if you want to put forward a policy, you have to know whether the politics are there. Can you get it through the Congress? He was the second chief of staff after they made some adjustments in the staff after the first chief of staff. Right. And so you need to know if the politics are going to work with the policy, and then can you communicate it? Do you have that set 
so that you know enough about how that policy is going to work that you can explain it. And um, Mike McCurry, is, who was the press secretary for Clinton, talked about that, how in their communications, when they would talk through the selling of a, a particular piece of legislation or a policy, that uh, Clinton uh, would ask, now, what do you think the publicity on it should be? And he may be unhappy with it. And he would say, it's not ready yet. Right. And so if you can't explain it in a simple, straightforward way, then don't put it forward. And you find that out, I think, by having those three parts together. All right, I want to do something that maybe I think is fun, but maybe other people would be nerdy, but I want to do a history lightning round. Okay, so let's do one-word answers, and maybe you can opine, and I'll give you my judgment as well if it, if it differs, but you're obviously the expert. So here we go. What was the worst transition in U.S. history? One of the worst transitions was Nixon to Ford, uh, because Ford, when he came in, had three staffs to deal with. So he had a lot of competing uh, interests. So he had the Nixon staff. He had the staff that he brought with him to the vice presidency from the Hill. But then he also had some vice president staff. And then he was bringing on people for presidential staff. So everybody didn't always get along. <laughs> and people don't actually think about that being a transition from Nixon to Ford, but it was a challenging one for the Ford, and it was a challenge in time for the country. Yes, and of a of a normal kind of a transition through election, it would be from uh, Truman to Eisenhower. Okay, what about Harrison? I mean, he had thirty some days in office, and then he died. Not. That was a pretty bad <laughs> transition, maybe. And you could also say uh, the John Quincy Adams to um, uh, Andrew Jackson, because Adams went horseback riding instead of attending the inauguration. Right, he couldn't stand him. <laughs> All right, how about the worst relationship, maybe besides Adams and Jackson, between an incoming and an outgoing president? I think Truman and Eisenhower is is up there. All right, they didn't even talk. Well, uh, Eisenhower did come and see Truman, but he wrote in his uh, memoirs that he didn't really learn anything from him. And I understand also at that meeting that he actually wouldn't even talk to Truman, that he would talk to one of Truman's aides. Truman would ask him a question, <laughs> and Ike would respond to an aide. Martha, who would you say has had the best transition out of the presidency? George W. Bush had the uh, the best one in, in the modern period, and of course he's the first one uh, after 9-11 to be considering a transition and the vulnerabilities that could be uh, that could be associated with it. It also had a financial the financial collapse was occurring during the at the very end. And so the incoming and outgoing, the Obama and Bush people worked on that together too. Who would you say is the senior official in the modern era, say the last 40 years, with the most White House experience? Well, there, there are people who uh, work in a White House that uh, the public doesn't see that uh, perform functions which uh, are necessary from one administration to another. So Joe Hagan, who was the uh, worked for both Bushes, 
and served as the deputy chief of staff for operations. He was important, and Andy Card was very important as well. He served in the first and the second Bush administration. And also Reagan, too. And Reagan, yes. Yes, he did. And then there's a woman who's worked in personnel, Katja Bullock, who's worked in all of the Republican personnel operations. So she is very much an institutional memory. Who is the senior official that's done more to advance the cause of transition planning than any other person? I think uh, Josh Bolton uh, would be the person because what he did during that final year in 2008 for preparing for the transition uh, was not called for in any legislation. It was just the president wanting him to have the best transition. And what he did then uh, found its way into legislation. Who's the person in Congress who's had the biggest impact on transition issues? Uh, uh, Ted Kaufman was very important in 2015 uh, legislation, and he was a senator from Delaware who took Joseph Biden's place when Biden became vice president. And that legislation is named after Ted Kaufman and Mike Levitt, who was a, a former governor and member of the George W. Bush administration, who was very involved in uh, transition planning and handled uh, Romney's transition planning. So my last question is this. Most people focus on the issues related to a transition to a new president and not so much on transitions to a second term. What advice would you have for the Trump administration on what they should be doing today to prepare in case they win in November? It's important to think through what you want in the second term because second terms are not ones uh, that have uh, historically been successful. So what you would think about is thinking that it gives you an opportunity for a new start and think through what kinds of items can you actually get past. Are there items that came from the first term that you didn't pass that actually do have bipartisan support? And uh, infrastructure is definitely one of them. And you might remember we've had many infrastructure weeks <laughs> where the administration was going to focus on in infrastructure but somehow got derailed for one reason or another. And that would be a good start. Another would uh, would be to think through what people you want to bring in who know uh, the issues that you're going to be interested in and think in positive terms of what is it that you want to leave behind when, um, when you leave the presidency. What are your accomplishments? And so uh, spending time on uh, trying to settle scores is not going to be, uh, as far as your legacy is concerned, that's not going to be uh, the kind of, of um, positive element that you want to, to leave as your legacy. Well, one thing that's your legacy is being perhaps the most authoritative writer and thinker on transition issues in the field of history. So thank you very much for all your work, and thank you for being on Transition Lab today. Oh, thank you very much, David. I really appreciate it. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast apps.